I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is Nancy McEldowney, a woman who's lived a rich life while serving the United States in foreign affairs under five different presidents. These days, she's an academic administrator at Georgetown University, where we took time to look back at some of the highlights of her career and the unfolding historical events that she got to witness up close. You know, I grew up in a really tiny town in Florida. It was called Clearwater Beach. And it was actually one of the barrier islands along the west coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. Teeny little thing, one road that went the length of the island. It wasn't even two miles long. And I never traveled outside the United States when I was a child. But I remember just sitting on the beach and looking at the Gulf of Mexico and thinking to myself, I know there's a big, amazing world out there, and I just wanted to see it. And so that got me interested in it, and through the course of college and then graduate school, I started looking more and more at cultural anthropology, comparative politics, comparative religion, and it led me to international affairs. And then when I got offered a job at the State Department, I just couldn't say no. I jumped at it. It was so much fun. When you were a child and you were looking out over the ocean, was there a particular culture or a country that had stuck out in your mind? Well, not one in particular, but I was always very mindful of the fact that my own family had been immigrants to this country. And in fact, My mother's family were French explorers, and they ended up settling in Kentucky. Uh And so that Kentucky-France connection and sort of the whole Appalachian connection to Scotland and Europe was always really key for me. Uh, My father's family were Irish potato farmers who Mm -hmm. left Ireland during the famine, settled in the uh, Ohio River Valley and grew potatoes there. Mm -hmm. And so I was just very mindful of that. And I always had a sense that whatever was going on for us, whatever our problem was, other people probably had a perspective on it and maybe could help us be part of the solution. Okay, so we'll jump to the State Department. Okay. So how did they get your name? Well, I was not actually planning to work for the State Department. When I was in graduate school, I was studying the then Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to stay in academia and be a college professor. But I started doing internships, and the, the university that I was studying at encouraged us to do those. So I went to the State Department, and it rocked my world. I saw people making decisions that were changing the rest of the world. And I thought, well, I could be an academic and write about the things they're doing, or I could join them and be one of the people that were doing things to really affect positive change in the world. And so that's when I made the decision. I said, this is for me. So you got a high out of it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It was exciting. And I've stayed high on it. I used to wake up every day and say, I can't believe they pay me to do this. Uh Now, that said, there's always a a warning about power and Mm -hmm. having power over other folks. Obviously, you were aware of that. And did it ever make you second guess what you were doing, like a decision? Like you said, you're going to affect lots of people by your decisions. Absolutely. Well, here's how I look at it, because um, I come from a family 
that has always been involved in service. My dad was in the Marine Corps. I have My husband was uh, Air Force pilot for 26 years. My mom was in the ultimate service profession because she was a nurse. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to do something in public service. I wanted to serve our country, but also help other people. And the way I've looked at it is we need people with a strong ethical core who care a lot about right and wrong and the difference between them and people who are prepared to make sacrifices to try to help others. And so that's why I chose to go in the State Department and I never forgot those very basic lessons about what's most important to in life and hanging on to your personal values as you're making decisions so that you don't get corrupted by the power and you don't start to think the ends justify the right. means. And is that something you saw go on? All the time. You yeah. see it all over the world. And many people ask me about different world leaders and they say, gee, did we know they were going to be that way when they got into office? And I said, well, we might have known but then, of course, being in office changes people, too. It's so demanding, the power is corrupting, and so it's always a dilemma that people have to struggle with. So once you were in the State Department, what was your first assignment? Well, my very first assignment, I was an unpaid summer intern, and I showed up in a borrowed suit <laughs> and scared to death, hyperventilated all day long. I was working on what we called the Soviet desk, the Office of Soviet Affairs, and I was super junior, had no special knowledge or expertise, but I got lucky and I ended up on the team that supported George Shultz, who was the secretary then, and he was meeting every six weeks with his Soviet counterpart, a man named uh, Shevardnadze. And we would travel every six weeks for him to have these meetings. And it was the very end of the Cold War. We were looking at issues of peace and war, how to bring the Warsaw Pact and NATO away from their very sort of tense Cold War footing to a place of closer collaboration. It was exhilarating. I, I absolutely loved it. And so there I was in my late 20s. I ended up accompanying President Reagan to the Reykjavik summit, to his first visit to Moscow. Um, I was so excited. Wow. And, you know, I've traveled around the world, but I've always been kind of a small town girl mm -hmm. and eating cornbread made in a cast iron skillet, <laughs> grits and greens, sitting on the porch and eating homegrown tomatoes, that kind of thing. And so there I was in Moscow, in Red Square, helping the president of our country try to do things that would help millions of other people. And I just pinched myself. Uh -huh. I couldn't believe it was real. But it also sobers you. It's a lot of responsibility and you got to get it right. Well, I mean, did you ever have those moments? Like, oh man, this is the day they're going to find out. I don't know what I'm doing. I think everybody in life has moments where they doubt themselves mm -hmm. and they've even given a special term to it imposter syndrome and where people go oh am i really up to this job or am i just kind of faking it and people are going to figure out right. i don't really 
belong here or I don't have the skill set. Everybody has those moments. I definitely had those moments. But I've also found that when you're doing something you're passionate about, you really care about, and you're facing a big challenge, people rise up to the challenge. But I was also lucky because I had people who believed in me. I had a family. My grandmother lived in the hills of Kentucky, and she used to say to me, you can do anything you set your mind to, and don't doubt yourself. When you feel doubt, just work harder, be better. Schultz. Now you worked directly under him? Well, to say I worked directly under him, he was the Secretary of State uh -huh. and I was a junior staffer, initially not even paid. Mm -hmm. I was an intern and then subsequently I was brought on through a program called Presidential Management Intern where I was barely paid. Mm -hmm. um, but I was within that structure. Now, the thing to know about George Schultz, though, is that he was the type of leader who would talk to everybody. And so the first time I met him, he walked into a room and I had a panic attack because I thought, I'm in the wrong place. I should not be in the room where the Secretary of State is. And I tried to push myself against the wall and kind of disappear. And he saw me visibly suffering, and so he walked over to me and held out his hand and said, Hi, I'm George Schultz. Who are you? And I introduced myself, barely able to speak because I was so scared. And he looked at my boss, who was standing next to me, also nervous, and he said to my boss, Well, you know, clearly this is why we're getting such good work coming out of your office. Aww. I walked on air. <laughs> For, for months after that, but he knew how to motivate people. So he could sense what you were going through? And... He could sense what I was going through, but I, I ended up uh, working with him, as I said, through travel and other things in the State Department for two years. And he was constantly reaching out. When we went to Moscow, and back then, those were tough times. We're going through tough times right now, those were tough then too. And on one trip, he and his wife scooped ice cream cones for every single person who worked in our embassy. Wow. And he was constantly trying to let people know that their work was appreciated and that he personally cared about the efforts they were making and the contributions that they were giving toward our foreign policy. Now, he's still alive. I know he's quite old. He is still alive. He's in his 90s. He still speaks out and writes. And in fact, in my last job where I was running the Foreign Service Institute, the training and education center for the State Department, I asked him to do some things for to help honor some of our staff. He agreed in a heartbeat, wrote us letters, hands uh, wrote certain letters in tribute to people. And it shows when you have a great leader who cares about the people who work under him or her, 
it makes a big difference. Yeah. What year did you start in the State Department? Uh, I started as an intern in 1986. Okay. And I worked for two years, and, and so when I arrived in 1986, Ronald Reagan was the president, and George Shultz was his secretary of state. And um, I was in a intern position, presidential management intern, or fellow as they call it now, for two years. And then I chose to join the Foreign Service, and I became a career diplomat. So what was the, f the focus of your job and the State Department when it came down to the Soviets at that time? I mean, Obviously, there was the nuclear deal that mm -hmm. they were trying to get passed. What were some other things? Because, if you don't mind, explain how, com how complicated it was. That well, it's hideously complicated <laughs> in one way, but in another way, it's very simple. We had a relationship with another very powerful country that had been our enemy, our adversary, for many decades. And we had reached a point where we Thought, we weren't sure, but we thought there might be a potential to try to turn things around a little bit. And so I remember talking to my grandmother, who we called Mima in Kentucky, mm -hmm. and my Aunt Betty, who's still with us, and explaining to them at the time that it was like any other relationship. If you've had uh, long-standing tensions... What are you going to do to try to cool those tensions down a little bit? And so what we tried to do was open dialogue and then also find areas where we could agree. So one of the things you mentioned, on the military side, we started trying to regulate the number of weapons that we had, and in particular nuclear weapons. So I had the enormous privilege of being on our delegation to the strategic arms talks. And so I traveled to Geneva, Switzerland and negotiated with the Soviet delegation about how we might limit those weapons. We also talked about other things. How could we agree on cultural exchanges, for example? So the Bolshoi Ballet could come to America and perform. So we did a whole range of issues looking at where we might be able to go. And that, of course, was when Gorbachev had become the leader of the Soviet Union. And he wanted to open things up primarily for economic growth. But then as the history books tell us, mm -hmm. he opened the door a little bit. And then his people pushed the door a whole lot wider. Right. In your opinion, how do you think Gorbachev... Especially when you had you know Andropov and Brezhnev and all these guys who were hardliners and, and pretty mean, I, I would say. How did he end up in that mix? And how did he rise in, in a system that doesn't encourage nice guys? That is a question that historians are going to puzzle over for, I think, many, many decades to come. And we asked ourselves that at the time. How can a product of this very closed, very authoritarian system open things up and be such a reformer. I'll share with you my personal opinion, mm -hmm. which is he didn't know what he was starting. He did not realize that the small scale changes and reforms that he was putting into place would accelerate so quickly to a very large-scale exchange. 
and, and he lost control and he regrets that and he said it at the time and, and subsequently. But I do think he believed in some greater democratization. Mm -hmm. And then of course we've seen it goes from one extreme to another and there's been a backlash and now mm -hmm. Putin has been in there. He's the longest serving leader in Russia's history. He's on either 16 or 17 years now. What are some like great stories from the, those times that you remember? And did you get to go to the Soviet Union? I did. I accompanied President Reagan on his first trip to Moscow. Uh -huh. And um, I did a number of other trips with Secretary Schultz into uh, the then Soviet Union. We primarily stayed in Moscow. One of my favorite stories at the time, there's one happy one and one sad one. Uh -huh. The I should start with the sad one, which is we were working so hard and I was trying so intently to do a good job that I did not even get to see Red Square until my third trip to uh -huh. Moscow because these were, you know, we weren't sightseeing, right. these weren't tourist trips, and we were also worried about being followed by intelligence officers and, and how strict and authoritarian the regime was. So we would go straight to the embassy and work around the clock. But one time we had done what our normal practice was, which uh, again was a very smart thing that George Schultz did. He would take his whole interagency team with representatives from the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies, the arms control agency that existed at the time, the State Department, and he would put us all on an airplane and he would fly us to Helsinki, Finland. And we would spend a couple of days there away from Washington and that's where we would figure out what our strategy was going to be. So that instead of people talking to the press or talking to their agencies, we would come together as a single team and decide what our policies were going to be. And we'd get over our jet lag. And then we would fly to Moscow and have these very high stakes meetings with uh, the Soviets or Russians. Well. One time we flew to Helsinki and a fog rolled in and we couldn't take off when we were ready to go to Moscow. And so instead of canceling the trip, the Finnish government and the Soviet government said, we will commission special trains for you. So the Finnish government sent us their prime minister's special train and we all got on that train and that train took us through the night to the border with the Soviet Union. And then at that point on the border, the Soviets had a special lead train car that they attached and they also did border checks all along the way. Mm -hmm. We were very nervous. Yeah. We didn't know what was going to happen. And then we ended up in Moscow early in the morning. And believe me, none of us got any sleep that night. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about that because in reading a lot of history books, that comes up a lot where yes. people are exhausted and they, they can make mistakes very easily because they can't think straight. They're on different right. time zones. How did you get used to that, I guess I would ask? Well, I'm not certain you ever really get used to it. It's tough. And um, it is one of the things that I think people don't focus on. They, they focus on the policy, they look at the travel, 
but they don't realize that it's physically grueling. You don't get a lot of sleep. Uh, you're not able to take care of yourself. And I was always worried that at the point of greatest exhaustion would be when we would make mistakes, when we would exercise bad judgment. So I was always very mindful of that and would try to take little cat naps mm -hmm. in the back of the car, try to do things to keep uh, myself and others at the top of our game. We didn't know then what people know now about human resilience and there's been a lot of research done which has said actually you're more productive if you work less and sleep more. Mm -hmm. We didn't know it then and I think we might have handled ourselves differently. But I'm not aware as I look back of us any mistakes that we made but I my guess is we probably could have been smarter or faster, somehow done things better. But luckily, knock on wood, yeah. I'm not aware of any instance where things went awry because of, of that. Okay, so after you know, Reagan, uh, did you stay in that position? I did not. Well, I chose to enter the Foreign Service and become a career diplomat. And um, so I took, there's a written test and an oral test. You go through this whole battery of tests to qualify for it. And when they said to me, congratulations, you've made it. Where would you like to go? And I said, hmm, let me think for a nanosecond. Uh -huh. I've done uh, graduate studies in the Soviet Union, worked with the Soviet Union, at that time spoke Russian. I said, how about Moscow? Mm -hmm. And they said, no, we're not going to send you there. They said, how about Cairo, Egypt? And I was so disappointed. <laughs> I was young and foolish, of uh -huh. course. I was so disappointed. And I said, I don't speak Arabic. Uh -huh. I've never been there. And I don't know anything about the region. They said, you're perfect. How does that work? <laughs> well, they taught me Arabic. They sent me to the Foreign Service Institute where I took special courses on the history and culture and politics of Egypt and the whole Middle Eastern region. And it was a revelation for me. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I learned so much. And um, I met Hosni Mubarak. I met the uh, widow of Anwar Sadat. I was there during the first Gulf War. And so when the hostilities were underway, and in fact, when there were bombings taking place with the threat of chemical weapon mm -hmm. use against Israel, I had friends and colleagues who were in Israel who actually came and stayed with me. So it was, it was fascinating. I also had some amazing personal adventures. I'd never really done any horse riding and I, I learned to ride on Arabian horses, went horse riding around the pyramids, uh, did three-day horse trips out into the Sinai Desert, wow. and um, really uh, hiked up Mount Sinai with a Bedouin guide, watched the sunrise, mm -hmm. really just had a fabulous time. When you're a diplomat, 
I know that the community tends to kind of stick together. I've noticed it in other countries I've been in, and every once in a while you find the one that kind of wandered off and, and made their own friends and kind of maybe got a different read of the country. Is that something you were able to do? Absolutely. I, I try not to be the one that wanders off, <laughs> but I was determined because I had grown up on that little island that I, I joined the Foreign Service because I wanted to see the world and I wanted to meet other people and I wanted to understand how they saw things, to see the world through their eyes. And so I did not want to be a part of what people call the expat, the expatriate community where the Americans or the Europeans all hang together. So wherever I lived, I wanted to go out and meet people from there. So when I lived in Cairo, Egypt, my friends were Egyptians and I spoke Arabic and it was wonderful. The only issue for me was I wanted to eat the way they did and um, so I ended up being sick a fair amount. That was not always so comfortable. But I wanted to see what life was like for them. Well, give us a character sketch of maybe a friend that you made. Okay. There was a woman who lived near me. She was about my age, so she was maybe in her early 30s. She had graduated from the American University in Cairo, so she had had a Western education. But she was working in a human rights uh, center because she wanted to expand democracy in Egypt. And unlike her mother, who did not wear a headscarf or a veil, this young woman had decided to wear a headscarf, not because she was particularly religious, but because it made her feel safer when she was walking on the streets. So it was an issue even then? Oh yes, okay. oh yes, it's yeah. been an issue for a long time. But uh, I have to say, Egypt is a place where there's an enormous amount of poverty, a lot of strife, social strife, political strife. And again, this was 30 years ago, but so much joy and so much love. There are people that are really, they love life and they embrace others. I joke now, but it was true. You would walk into an Egyptian's home and they would say, oh, you look tired. Would you like to take a bath before dinner? Really? And Oh, yes. Wow. And just anything. And, and if it got late, as it invariably did, because dinners began at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, I was a single woman there, they would say, spend the night. Hmm. Don't go home. Sleep here. We'll take you home in the morning. That's great. You couldn't pay for that kind of experience. <laughs> oh, it was just lovely. And that's why I say... You know, had it been left to me, I would have gone to Moscow, which was a place I already knew. And instead, the State Department said, no, we're going we're gonna to expand your horizons, send you someplace new. But actually, one of the things I did while I was there was to follow the Soviet account and look at how the Soviets were operating in the Middle East. Ms. Sadat, again, for folks who may not remember, can you talk about her husband, Anwar, and how important he was and how tragic his death was? Well, he was a true historic leader, and he uh, defied all of the critics at the time because he was prepared to try to get some sort of peace arrangement, and he reached out to Israel and was trying to have... Uh, 
some sort of brokered peace arrangement between Egypt and Israel and they set up after a series of very bloody, very difficult wars, they set up an arrangement in the Sinai Desert that was like a demilitarized zone between the two countries. But of course, that in itself became a point of great controversy and he was assassinated by someone who opposed the peace agreement that had been put in place. Wasn't there some connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, even with the... Uh, yes, the Muslim Brotherhood has been uh, operating in Egypt and throughout the Middle East for many, many decades. And the Muslim Brotherhood is a tough, tough issue to get a hold of because they have promoted violence, they have conducted violence, and been a, a terrorist-supporting organization for a long time. And they must be condemned for that. At the same time, they also went into the slums, they talked to people at their level, they helped poor people fill out forms to get government support. Many women in Muslim societies never left the home unveiled, but they would send women into the homes to talk to them. And so the Muslim Brotherhood got grassroots support because it talked to people at their level on their terms. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when today people say, how can it be that the Muslim Brotherhood would be elected into office after you see the, the youth revolution, the student revolution in Tahrir Square? It's because any political organization that speaks to people where they are about the issues that matter to them is gonna get their support. Miss Sadat, when you met her, mm -hmm. was there any particular memories or conversations? Well, I just remember being awestruck because when you look at people who have sort of stood at the edge of history, they've been a part of, whether they did it or whether they watched it happen, but really when the tectonic sh plates shift, and, and you are there at the moment when things like that are happening. It's transformative for that individual. I think they have so much wisdom to share. And then, of course, she lost her husband to an assassination. And you think about what that does to your perspective on life. But she had stayed. She had come back to Egypt. She was trying to be a force for good. Egypt, I went back to the United States and I was offered a job working on European security matters, which was something I was really interested in. But there was also a personal angle as well, because when I was in Switzerland, I met a man <laughs> and... He was very dashing. And, and uh, he was very and dashing and very charming. <laughs> And um, we parted ways because he was in the Air Force and I was in the uh, Foreign Service. And he ended up going to Japan while I was in Egypt. And that was before email. Mm. And uh, it was not an easy commute between Japan and Egypt. So we both came back to the United States and were able to continue our relationship. See, if 
we where this relationship might go. That man is my husband of 25 years and um, the father of my two children. But so I came back to Washington and uh, worked on European security matters. Which were at the time? Well, at the time, first of all, the Soviet Union started falling apart. The Berlin Wall came down. So this was, the world was, was changing before our eyes. This was so dramatic and so exhilarating. We didn't know what to make of it. These were the days when scholars were proclaiming the end of history. Hmm. And so it was, it was just fantastic working on it. And I ended up, one project I was super, super proud to have worked on was something that um, we said, okay, the Soviet Union's falling apart. The Warsaw Pact is no more. What's going to happen to all those nuclear scientists who worked in the Soviet Union to help build up their nuclear arsenal? So I ended up being transferred to the Pentagon, and I worked there on a series of policies where we set up um, what we called science centers where a Soviet and then Russian scientists worked together with American scientists on peaceful uses of nuclear energy mm -hmm. as a way to put their expertise to good use while we also launched a process where all of the former Soviet republics which subsequently became independent countries, they gave up their nuclear weapons. And think about that. Think about the problems we're dealing with today, North Korea and Iran. Those countries peacefully agreed to give up their nuclear weapons. So, I mean, that sounds like a great plot to a, a spy thriller about yep. trying to find some rogue scientist or nuclear bomb, but that was a real thing. And, of course... I think back at World War II, they, they would always say that the Cold War was basically uh, our Germans versus the Soviet Germans that had been conscripted, I suppose. Were there any moments like, oh man, where did this guy go? Or do we? Oh, many, many. Where did this guy go? Where did that weapon go? Where, you know, that nuclear weapon. And we absolutely knew that finding all of those scientists if we did it in a pejorative, a negative way, we wouldn't succeed. So we had to use, uh, if I may, use, we had to use honey rather than vinegar. Gotcha. And we had, to, we had to entice them with a positive agenda rather than to say we were going to be punishing them or putting them in prison. Because that we knew that wouldn't work. They would run and hide. Well, you don't mind talking about that. That's the delicate thing. And, and of course that's going on in our own country now where people may look back at a historical period and they see black and white, but they don't see how complicated something was. Uh, it's extremely complicated. And so in this case, we could have looked at the time and said, oh, a scientist who helped build a Soviet nuclear weapon, he's our enemy. But again, look, try, try to walk in his shoes for a while. He was serving his government he was doing what his government had asked him to do in the same way that our nuclear scientists were patriots and serving their government. And so we thought these are highly educated people with very specialized expertise. If we can come together 
and do something for peaceful uses of nuclear weapons, how great would that be? And so another example was look at what we've done with the space station where American and Russian astronauts are together doing uh, space exploration. The more we can look at ways to come together to find solutions that serve the greater number of people, the better off we are. Which is not to say you overlook your problems or you forgive atrocities. I'm not suggesting that. But I do think the more we look at common solutions, the better off we're going to be. After that, I was assigned to Germany. And there's a funny story there because um, I had spent a couple of years, about four years, working in what we call the European Bureau. And um, I'd done pretty good work. I'd worked real hard. And they said to me, okay, we want to reward you. Where would you like to go? And I said, mm, let's see, music, food, culture, how about Paris? <laughs> and my husband said, oh, I don't know, Germany sounds really interesting. And I, I really did not want to go to Germany, but I didn't know anything about it, but I just set my heart on, on uh, France. So I put together a trip that I thought would really seal the deal. And we were going to go both to Paris and Bonn was the capital at the time of Germany. So we traveled to Paris first. The weather was terrible. There was a strike of sanitation workers, so there was garbage everywhere. <laughs> the hotel reservation got messed up. We had a terrible time. Very romantic, I'm sure. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Not at all. And then we arrived in Germany, and the sun was shining, and it was immaculately clean, and the people at the embassy treated us so well. And I thought, uh-oh, my fate is sealed. So we ended up going to Germany, which, of course, was fantastic. My husband worked as the defense attache there, uh, working with a lot of the um, military officers and enlisted people who were deployed to Germany. And I worked on political issues while we were there. And again, it was fantastic. I just loved it. And it was a time when um, the former Soviet Union was breaking apart. Mm -hmm. Germany had to deal with its own identity. Would it undertake military operations that were not, quote, in defense, but uh, in fact uh, to advance a mission that was going on outside of its own borders? And German reunification, where East and West Germany were coming together, was still very much underway. Explain how difficult that would have been when oh, you, you have goodness. one country that was thriving, another country that had just stopped in time yes. or maybe went backwards. Oh, well, East Germany really did go backwards. And when the Berlin Wall was set up and Germany was partitioned into East and West, it really changed several generations of Germans. It, it determined the entire history of the Cold War and all of Europe, of course, but for the people of Germany, it was so searing. Families were separated, couldn't uh, communicate. People died trying to cross uh, the, the border, trying to get across the wall. 
and it had become such a huge and horrible symbol of of how cruel the the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet regime, the whole communist regime was. And when the wall came down, there were lots of different ways that that the German government could have approached that because East Germany was just flat on its back economically. People they had no money, they had no real means of supporting themselves. It had been a centrally controlled economy and society. And the German government took a very far-sighted, very visionary approach. And they said, much as Abraham Lincoln did at the end of our Civil War, he said, there will be no celebration. We are brothers, we are one country. And the Germans said, we are one country now. These are our brothers and sisters. We will come together. And they made a decision to pour hundreds of millions, billions of dollars into rebuilding East Germany, into fully integrating the, the two countries. And it was extremely positive and important. But there was resistance, if I remember correctly. Oh, lots of it. Of course because, there was. Because, I mean, I'm reminded of, a, I think it was a famous South Korean official who had said even if the, the Kim dynasty fell, they had no interest in reunifying because I think he made some terrible comment about that they were handicapped midgets by this point and, and they would just collapse their own economy. So, I mean, I know in Germany there was some that felt the same way. Well, there are always people who are going to feel that way. Um, and in fact, there's even an economic principle that I think will, will resonate with people when they hear it. It's an economic principle called beggar thy neighbor. And if you are so concerned about building up, whether it's your own wealth or your own power, that you do it at the expense of everyone else, you end up impoverishing those around you. And the irony then is that you don't have anybody to trade with. And if you live in a lousy neighborhood, it's going to affect you. The German leadership at the time, Helmut Kohl, who was a very visionary leader at the time, recognized that in order for West Germany to stay strong, he had to make East Germany strong, and he had to build a united country. And the hardest thing to overcome was what the Germans called, they, they used a term called Mauer im Kopf, which means the wall in the mind. Even though they tore down the actual Berlin Wall, people still saw the other side based on their accent and their clothing as somehow different. Today, that's been largely, not 100%, but it's been largely erased, mm -hmm. and they do see themselves as one people, which holds out hope for places like North and South Korea if they are able to merge. And it also, frankly, holds out hope for me when I look at America today and people are saying, oh, there's so many differences and we between North and South, between Republicans and Democrats. I believe that we can all come together if we focus on what matters most and, and what we want to be as a country. I also had the privilege of working at the White House during the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. One of the scariest things I have ever done is to walk into the Oval Office and brief the president before he's getting ready to do something. And 
One of the most memorable experiences for me was getting ready to brief President Clinton before the phone call that he made to Chancellor Helmut Kohl. And Helmut Kohl had just lost the German election. Mm. And Clinton and Kohl had become very close. They had spent a lot of time together. Helmut Kohl was a historic figure, had presided over Germany for so long and made such important decisions. And um, I was racking my brain. How could I convey that in my briefing to President Clinton? And I never talk about the actual things that are said Mm -hmm. in any of the um, confidential meetings that I'm privy to, but that was a hugely memorable experience for me. After Germany, we went back to Washington again and um, did a series of jobs there. But I think really the most interesting period for me, um, my husband and our growing family, as we had both of our daughters, spent uh, 10 years, 10 consecutive years overseas. And we served in a country called Azerbaijan. And my family used to say, Azerbaijan what? Azerbaijan where? (laughs) The capital was a place called Baku, and it was one of the former Soviet republics. Fascinating place located on the Caspian Sea with lots of very important security issues as well as energy issues. Then we moved next to Turkey and a hugely important NATO ally, country with a lot of domestic turmoil. And um, there was a lot of violence, many terrorist attacks while we were there. Um, I was featured on an Al-Qaeda website as their primary target at the time. Wow, congratulations. Well, I had made a number of public speeches um. condemning the terrorist action and had taken a number of policy decisions. So the entire time we were in um, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Bulgaria, we had bodyguards and uh, very, very stringent security measures. Did it ever materialize into anything? Without going into too much uh, of kind of sensitive information, but we were surveilled and followed. There were plots that um, were foiled that attacks that were planned against the embassies as well as against us that um, the CIA and the FBI were able to uh, shut down. Wow. And both in Azerbaijan and in Turkey, I was the number two person at our embassy, what we call the deputy chief of mission. And then I was appointed to be ambassador to Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. So we served in Sofia, Bulgaria, and that was... Shortly after, actually while we were there, the Russians had invaded Georgia. Mm. And so that was a source of great uh, concern and controversy. And then also we were, the United States was uh, pursuing military engagement in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And that Mm. was a primary focus of my work then. With each of those countries, tell 
folks listening, something that you'd always wanted them to know? About Azerbaijan, which is a very small country in terms of territory, small in terms of population, and in a lousy neighborhood. Iran is their southern neighbor, Russia is their northern neighbor. They've been at war for many decades with their eastern neighbor, which is Armenia. And then they've got the Caspian on their uh, other side, and um, that's also a very troubled place. But um, my daddy was a poker player, and he used to say that you can play a bad hand well and the Azerbaijanis were dealt a bad hand, but at least the leader at the time when I first arrived was a man named Haydar Aliyev, and he was smart, he was a clever operator, and he was really trying to lead Azerbaijan, not all the way into a Western direction, but he was edging toward the West. His son, Ilham Aliyev, who is still in power, was neither as smart nor as clever and has really clamped down, mm -hmm. is not a Democrat, and has taken the country very much in the wrong direction. One interesting thing for people to know, especially if they're interested, like I am, in country music mm -hmm. and bluegrass, they have a very unique form of singing in Azerbaijan called Mugam. And people sing in their throats. And I actually have a family member who's a professional singer who came over to study this unique form of music that they have in Azerbaijan. They also have some very fascinating antique instruments. In Turkey, which is a huge country in terms both of its territory and its population, and sees itself as a country that has always straddled east and west. It's a Muslim-majority country, but yet has parts of, of its social and, and national identity that are very Western-oriented, member of NATO. It's one of the few democracies, right? Yes. Even though I know now that's kind of in... Very much in question. Right. But, uh, and a member of NATO, wanted to be a member of the European Union. Hugely important for what happens to the rest of the region throughout the Middle East as well as throughout that part of Europe with such an important history. We really loved our time in, uh, in Turkey and, and very much loved the culture there. But I guess if people ever have a chance, whether they are able to visit or simply to look at it, there are some places in the world that, have, that are emblematic, that are, that are a symbol for what has happened throughout history. One of those, one of the greatest cities in the world is Istanbul. And Istanbul has been called city of world desire. And it's built on a series of hills. So much of world history was written through what happened in Istanbul. And so that's something that I would urge people, along with amazing beauty, the arts and the culture, and the food, which is unbelievable. And then we went next to Bulgaria, which again is a smaller place. And in fact, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, ruled Bulgaria for 500 years. And so there are a number of similarities there. Bulgaria was 
one of the most politically conservative of the Warsaw Pact states. In fact, they used to say it was one of the Soviet republics. And it was also throughout the Cold War, it was a place of great spy intrigue. Many people believe that someone was killed by a spy shooting a poison dart out of the bottom of an umbrella. Wow. It was super close to Moscow throughout the Cold War. And unfortunately, a number of those close ties uh, to Moscow and uh, have continued throughout the post-communist era. Bulgaria is a place, a mountainous country, and it is a place that prides itself on their folkloric culture and um, a lot of their older traditions. And it's also a place that has struggled a lot because of corruption. After the communist period, they had a lot of leaders who were, were cheats and, and liars, who, who stole money from the people and, and took the country in the wrong direction. Were they the same leaders that had been in power, more or less? Uh, some of them were, but some of them were new people who came in and just took advantage mm -hmm. of what happened. And uh, there was a lot of brain drain. And I'm so proud that there are people who are still fighting, Bulgarians who are fighting to make their country modern mm -hmm. and to fight against corruption. So after your stint in that, I guess it would be Asia mm -hmm. Minor, where did you go from there? I came back and I was asked to serve as the number two person, uh, helping to run the bureau that was in charge of all of Europe and Eurasia. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was a man who was a political appointee for the Obama administration, who was the number one person, what we call assistant secretary, and I was the principal deputy assistant secretary, which is a long, silly title. Uh, but so I was the senior career person in charge of everything from the United Kingdom on one side all the way over to uh, Russia on the other side and all the countries in between. Oh my goodness, so many things that we tried to do. And when you've got 49 countries along with the European Union, the NATO Alliance, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, um, there was a lot going on at that time. Uh, we were trying to get the NATO Alliance to be supportive, to remain supportive in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Arab Spring happened while we were there and we were trying to get our European allies to be helpful when we implemented the no-fly zone in Libya, for example watching the Syria crisis unfold. I then went on to be the senior vice president at the National Defense University for two years. And then after that, I was the director of the Foreign Service Institute, which I was the chief learning officer for the Department of State. Um, now I am here at Georgetown. I'm a distinguished professor of practice and the director of the Master of Science of Foreign Service program. Towards the end of our time together, I asked Ms. Malkadowney to give her assessment of some of the current going-ons around the world. The big issue, I guess, is Russia and Putin. And I've heard the Russians, some Russians' point of view that, that you know, it's hard for us to see Putin as a good guy, but to a lot of Russians, you know, they give him credit for bringing their country out of 
poverty. So what is your view on that? How do we deal with them? Russia has been through some very, very difficult circumstances, and the people of Russia have suffered unbelievably. They've suffered through oppression, they've suffered through poverty, they've suffered through cruel punishments, and they have a cultural heritage that cherishes the strong man approach. So it doesn't surprise me that Putin is popular in Russia both because he has helped grow their economy somewhat, although there are some structural weaknesses there to be sure, and because many of them like the strongman approach. But of course, what I believe Russia really needs is someone with a long-term vision that will make it a market economy as well as an open democracy. And what Putin has done while growing the economy somewhat, he has cracked down on free speech, cracked down on anybody who criticizes him or opposes him. Uh, human rights organizations have been kicked out of the country. His critics have been imprisoned and potentially poisoned. So am I a fan of Vladimir Putin? Absolutely not. I believe what the United States should do is a sort of two-part or multi-speed approach. We should cooperate with Russia where we can, where we have common interests, at the same time that we criticize them for the things that are doing wrong, and that we try to encourage them to move in the direction of a more liberal, more open, democratic system. What's our leverage? Well, um, we actually have leverage in a variety of areas, but each of them are limited. First of all, there have been times in the past when we made cooperation in one area contingent on progress in another. Secondly, we have been for many years convinced that greater economic growth and more open economic activity would expose the people of Russia to more information through the internet, through uh, just tr business travel. And people will start demanding things of their own volition once they see that it's possible. And I think that is what happened under Gorbachev it is likely to happen over time. It's going to take much longer under Putin because I think many of the Russian people felt that what happened when they lost the Cold War, when their country went down after um, Gorbachev was in power, that that was humiliating to them. And they're a very proud people and they wanted to regain their standing in the world and they think Vladimir Putin did that for them. But I also think we have to be very clear-eyed about it, not starry-eyed, uh -huh. clear-eyed. Uh, and the Russian intelligence services have been infiltrating the internet systems. They have been infiltrating business systems across Europe and throughout the United States. Uh, and so I have no special access to any of the intelligence mm -hmm. now, but I feel very confident that they did for our election what they tried to do throughout the time I was in Azerbaijan and Turkey and Bulgaria and saw it close up 
what they tried to do in terms of swaying public opinion, influencing elections, bribing officials, trying to twist things in their direction. The Kurds in, I'd say, in Iraq and Syria, particularly, they're kind of seen as the good guys. But in Turkey, not so much. And recently they voted to Kurdistan to actually become a country for the first time, I think, in their entire history. Do you think that's a good thing? Like most things in the world, it's complicated. (laughs) And the Kurdish people, the ethnic Kurdish people, are dispersed across many countries in the Middle East. They're in Iraq, they're in Iran, they're in Syria, they're in Turkey. The Kurds believe, and I think with some justification, that they have been treated badly in all of the countries that they currently live in, and that they've been systematically oppressed. And in response to that, there have been a number of Kurdish groups that have morphed into terrorist organizations. When I lived in Turkey, there was a particular Kurdish terrorist organization called the PKK that killed hundreds of people in terrorist attacks all over the country to include right in the middle of the capital city, downtown Ankara, over a hundred people were killed or maimed uh, in one attack while I was there. And so it's become a very complicated situation. The fact that the Kurds in Iraq, in the autonomous region of Kurdistan in Iraq, voted for uh, succession and independence doesn't surprise me. It's something that they've wanted for a very long time. But the questions that you have to ask as they uh, debate this further, one, are they economically and politically viable? Can they set up a stable independent state that will be a net exporter of stability and prosperity rather than a net exporter of instability and violence. The second question you have to ask though, what's the ripple effect? What are the repercussions that will come from this decision if they go forward for the Kurds who live everywhere else in the region? Will they want to move to Iraqi Kurdistan? Will they want to set up autonomous regions of their own? Will they want their own countries, East Kurdistan, West Kurdistan, North Kurdistan? These are all questions that will potentially destabilize the neighboring countries. And so you have to look at that. It's not a black or white, straightforward issue. I understand their desire for self-determination, but we're seeing a wave of secessionist movements around the world. Kurdistan in the Middle East, Catalonia in Spain, even California today is looking for a vote. And there's been a poll done in the last year which said four in 10 Americans, and actually 50% of millennials support a U.S. state's right to succeed from the Union. But you have to think, what does that tell us about what's going on around the world? And I think it's not just that people want to divide into smaller and smaller states, but it's that the institutions that we used to look to for legitimacy and authority are starting to recede, that their authority has been 
has is eroding and people are looking more and more to legitimacy in other sort of identity-based organizations, people who think like me, people in the same political mm. party, people from the same religion or region. That's what we're devolving down into. I find that interesting because uh, right now the class I'm taking is during the uh, Articles Confederation, and we forget that each one of the 13 original states were small countries, basically, right. and they identified as such. They did not identify themselves as Americans. It took a lot of effort to get them to see themselves as Americans. Right. Well, and that, that leg- legacy lives on today, the whole issue of states' rights mm-hmm. and how we separate out each of those original 13 independent states, how they come together in a genuinely unified and cohesive federation. And it's a tension that's, that yeah. uh, is with us today. Right. You see it in the Electoral College. You mm-hmm. see it in how both uh, houses of Congress are set up. Okay, Egypt. When the, the Arab Spring came about, I remember a lot of people were optimistic. And then all of a sudden, things kind of fell apart and you didn't see the media focus on it that much. I assume you still pay attention to what's going on there. I do not in a detailed way, right. but I do. And, you know, whenever there's dramatic change, people are excited, they mm-hmm. pay attention right away. But actually what history tells us is that there are these cataclysmic events for good and ill, but then they're followed by a long slog where people implement and make sense of what happened and how you take things forward. And often there's backsliding. And there was great hope, great jubilation that the Middle East was poised on the edge of a great democratic wave. And in fact, um, one of my students here was involved in the student revolution in uh, in Egypt, and he talks with just such thrill and excitement about those days. But then there was a clampdown. And I believe that the clampdown is a part of the revolution, that it is a trend that is going to continue. We're not done. We haven't seen the end of history. Things will continue there, and I think... Ultimately, democracy will come. There will be liberalization throughout the Middle East, but it's going to take a longer period of time and potentially more violence. Yeah, historically, you look back, very few revolutions ever ended up very good. Right. They ended up worse. So in your mind, is it better for gradual reform? Oh, well, one of the dangers that U.S. policymakers often fall into, and it's a trap I try not to fall into, is thinking that we can control things all the time. Well, what do we want? Do we want gradual reform? Do we want quick change? And both as a policymaker and as a parent, I realize that there's only so much I can control. Oftentimes, the people of a country are going to have to decide how they want to take things forward. And when you're throwing off the shackles of autocratic leadership, saying to a generation who spent 50 years living under oppression that they should wait another 50, that's a hard sell. Sometimes dramatic change is what it takes, but it's not always up to us. It's not always up to an outside power to decide what we think is best. Have you ever, and you can be specific or you don't have to be, have you ever seen a situation going and you, of course, you know we can't control it and you think, man, they're, they're running off a cliff, but that's what they want. We have to let them. 
many times I have seen that. And I've looked at situations where people resorted to violence and whether it was violent conflict between two domestic groups, whether it was violent conflict between two countries. And I see that hundreds, thousands of people give up their lives for that. And I wonder, will it really end up in a better place? Mm -hmm. The wars over the former Yugoslavia, the wars in the Middle East, you know, I still don't know. We're gonna enter our 17th year in Afghanistan, the longest war in the history of our country. And how are we gonna define success? What's gonna be an acceptable outcome for us in that conflict? And I don't know the answer to that. And I, I'm somebody who comes from a military family and I've worked with the US military for a very long time. And we can't allow it to become a haven for terrorist organizations, but what does a country like Afghanistan that had no real infrastructure, political or economic, that was tribal, that many people described as being 12th and 13th century in terms of its development, what does that look like after we spend a decade and a half, many trillions of dollars, thousands of lives? I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's a, it's a question that all of us should be asking ourselves. I should mention one controversy involving Ms. McIndowney, which was her decision in June of this year, 2017, to resign from her position as the director of the Foreign Service Institute over the Trump administration's perceived hostility towards the State Department. So, I figured she'd have a few opinions on the use of the word deep state when used to describe her and her former colleagues. This <coughs> phenomenon of deep state, mm -hmm. and you worked in the State Department, I know the State Department gets a bad rap a lot of times. Is it a real thing? And what's your take on it? Deep state is a term that was coined by academics many decades mm -hmm. ago to describe a, a situation in developing countries like two that I've served in, Egypt and Turkey. And in both of those countries, people described, and I saw a deep state that was made up of military officers and intelligence agents that were basically like a shadow government and they would manipulate the levers of power mm -hmm. through dirty tricks and public demonstrations and sometimes actual violence and assassinations because if they ever saw anything they didn't like, if they thought the government was veering in the wrong direction. So it was often like there was a deep state that was really controlling things and then a puppet government that might have been elected by the people, but it was kind of a semi-real election. The fact that deep state is being used now by, by the leaders of the American government to describe the loyal men and women who are the civil servants of our country is astonishing to me and deeply troubling. And I, I think it is, it is a real travesty that disrespects the service mm -hmm. that 
that people give to our country. Do you think when people use that term, they might have a legitimate complaint about maybe bureaucracy, for example? Yes. I, I think all of us, including people who were part of the bureaucracy, have been frustrated by the bureaucracy mm -hmm. because it's slow and inefficient and it's weak and it, it absolutely should be reformed and fixed. But deep state carries with it these dark conspiratorial tones and meaning that is is very, very troubling to me because it also does something else which I think is is destructive. In America, we have a tradition of open dialogue and debate. And I've worked for Republicans, I've worked for Democrats, I've served loyally for 30 years, and throughout my service, every team that came in after an election said, let's have a discussion, let's have a debate. What's good, what's bad, what should we change, what should we keep? But it was very much a, the election's over, we're all one team, we all serve the American people, and everybody came together. This administration, which is absolutely unprecedented in my 30-year experience, came in and said, we don't trust the government, we don't trust the bureaucrats, they are part of the deep state, we want to get rid of as many of the public servants as we can. And what they've done is they've stripped the government of expertise, knowledge that you only get after many years of service, and they're making mistakes because they're doing things without knowing the history, without knowing what came before, even if they want to change it. But they need to know, they need to proceed in a in a way that benefits from the experience and expertise of those who came before, even if you change it 100%. Do you feel like, because obviously you've worked for both parties, that there is the real person, and then there's the one that gets in front of the camera and maybe plays a part? Yes, absolutely, especially during the campaign. And our domestic politics have become so polarized and in order to get elected, you have to please so many small interest groups that during the course of the campaign, you're not really seeing the person. You're seeing, I don't want to call it a cardboard character, but you're seeing sort of a one-dimensional picture of the person. Once they get into office, it had always been my hope that people, our leaders would say, you elected me to exercise my best judgment. And I'm privy to information. I have a perspective that looks at the country overall. So I'm not gonna make everybody happy, but I'm gonna do, I'm gonna proceed on the basis of my conscience, what I think is best for this country and not worry about reelection. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com.